Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us. Uh, today, we are lucky to have on the show Josh Levy. Uh, Josh is a uh, software engineer uh, hailing from uh, Mountain View or Silicon Valley, however you want to define the territory yeah. down there. And uh, uh, cool story, Josh, is, Josh has got many to tell. And uh, I think what, one, of the, one of the cool things we want to talk about today is uh, last year, I guess 2015, you were the most starred, you were the most starred repo guy on GitHub. Yeah. <laughs> so you wrote a. He would, Josh wrote a collaborative piece called "The Art of the Command Line," which I think got like twenty five thousand stars on GitHub, or something right, like that. Right. So among among techies, it was pretty popular. Yeah, and if and if you are curious about the command line, I mean, the art of the command line is pretty. Um, for me, as a non technical person, a pretty um, impressive feat. Um, just the depth of all the knowledge there, and then you and I wrote that piece called. Uh, uh, the, guide, the open guide to equity compensation, that was your idea to write an open guide and to publish it on GitHub and to, again, collaborate with the community as a whole. I think your Art of the Command Line piece, that's been translated into how many different languages? Right. So it's not a very large work. It's just a small document, but it's um, it's been pretty exciting to have something that simple like that that you write that a lot of people uh, find useful and, and, in fact, become find it useful enough that they want to contribute and improve it, which I yeah. think is the great spirit of the whole GitHub trend. And so after it was released, people would start uh, connecting and saying, hey, could I translate this to Chinese or Russian? And I was thinking that for sure, that's great. And, uh, and even basically assign maintainers so people would maintain it in different languages. And now it's up to, I think it's 14 languages. 14. So it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really fun to have a little community of people around a document like that. So yeah. It's not it's kind of like an open source project, right? And it's kind of like a blog, but it longer lived, sort of like a little bit of a community. And I, so I, I think it's an interesting uh, way to get people to share information in helpful ways. Sure. Well, David, thanks for being on the show. And I, I mean, I'd love to talk about so many different things with you today. Um, why don't we start with kind of how your career got started? Tell me, like, what you were what you were doing and how you wound up in Silicon Valley. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess going back a ways, I, uh, I thought I would be a mathematician, and I was in, uh, partway through a Berkeley math PhD and kind of came to the realization that I enjoyed working with teams and building things, and software was something I had you know, been, been a programmer since a, a reasonably young age. And so I ended up dropping out and uh, you know, taking more computer science classes, dropping out and uh, going into start, starting to work in Silicon Valley more on the research side for a number of years and then later in a series of startups. So um, I, the last uh, seven or eight years I've been in three different startups, mostly early to mid-stage. So um, everything from second hire to company, uh, the, the most successful startup is Bloomreach and it was um, getting around to be around 200 people by the time I left. So from second hire to 200. That's pretty just, good. That's pretty, that, was a SaaS, that was a SaaS company? Yeah. So that was a SaaS uh, data, so almost data science as a service okay. sort of company uh, in the marketing space. Uh, prior to that, I was uh, in a very hyped search engine startup called Cool. Cool. And, <laughs> and uh, with an unusual spelling like a lot, of, a lot of startups in Silicon Valley, both then and now. Um, uh, but it, uh, it was a lot of really solid you know, brilliant engineers at, at, at each of those companies that that, that are, I learned a lot from. But but the first one was a uh, basically a, a flat out failure, and yeah, the, the cool, second one has cool. been pretty successful. Yeah, the second one, Bloomreach, has been pretty successful so far. Um, 
uh, they're, they're, you, they're not like 300 people or something. Sure. Still and then growing, the, doing and, great. And then the, the Siri found the, the Siri founders, the Viv, the Viv Labs company. Tell, tell us about that. Like, what's going on with that company? What is going on with that company? Right. So, I mean, my background is a little bit on the technical mathematical side. So, I've always found areas around AI and search, which involves a lot of algorithms, pretty interesting. Uh, and uh, in my research days, I worked with. Uh, Adam Chire, the, the technical founder of Siri at SRI, and uh, and so he came back and was working on something new and exciting in the AI space. So I joined very early uh, with that company as well. And so again, early stage, picking a company, it's like doing something exciting and jumping in early and trying to help build out a product. Um, so you add those up, it's a few, no, few years of these kind of early to mid-stage startup experiences. I've, I've both been hands-on and, and done also I think some of the more challenging aspects are really around scaling and becoming a manager and thinking about how teams work effectively and not just not just yourself as an engineer. Uh, so, so it's it's been a number of years of really interesting experience in, in, in these kind of both successful and unsuccessful startups. So, what do you, Mike? Mike, I'd like your reaction to this too. I mean, I think I think at, at YC Demo Day this year there were mm -hmm. like maybe um, maybe four four chatbot companies. Yeah, yeah. One thing I, I can say about Silicon Valley is is that things have trends. So you know, if you go back a few years, no one was interested in AI. In fact, there was a period where people were skeptical of it. But then, all of us, you know, recently people are AI is sexy again. And once something gets exciting like that, people tend to jump on, often for legitimate reasons. I think it's not it's not uh, hype is not always bad, but um, it right now there is a lot of interest around smart. Uh, you know, software in various ways, and machine intelligence because it's becoming a, a buzzword, yes. and uh, and I think chatbots are part of that. Is people are really captivated by the idea of of software being smarter and using fan fancier algorithms or, or or data science to make better experiences. Yeah, right. Are the, are the AI improvements what's driving the the kind of return to chatbot type technology? Because I mean, when you think about things like Slack and and kind of the you know chatbot. Uh, concept. It's not new. Uh, if anything, Slack is kind of like IRC was a long time ago, and it's kind of like it's just for you know IRC for a new a new generation. Um, and is is it is it just coming back around because it's just kind of interesting? It's just running a cycle, or or did the AI improvements really make it something you know significantly better than it used to be? Like right. What, no, I think what's it's driving that excitement? Yeah. Question. Um, I think. I mean, a saying I think among a lot of folks in Silicon Valley, and I'm sure. You know, in, in broadly, is 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 often it's not about what are the good ideas; it's the timing around the ideas, and uh, you know, it's like when is the right time. And I and I think that a lot of these ideas, I mean, things like Slack are not completely new as product ideas, but the execution was really well done, really well, and the the early market adoption was really well, and it's a very the whole product as a whole is very viral. Yeah, so, and on so this that's. That's on, on this on this point, Mike. I think Josh has something really interesting to say about Slack and what and why it was viral. Like oh, what, I, the viral. Like describe that for me again. Oh well, I think that I, I, I sh there's there's been a lot written about Slack, and I, there's probably people far you know far more thoughtful than I am have, have blogged about these things. But I um, I think that fundamentally the product isn't radically new. As you mentioned, IRC, all sorts of different kinds of chat has existed for ages. But uh, it has a Slack. The product has a certain virality to it, regardless of whether you think it improves productivity, because people have a feeling now when they're in a Slack team that they're going to be left out, 
And so I think that that, that the feeling that you want to you want to be engaged and connect makes it sort of viral on the team, and it, and it has a way of once it starts to take hold, it it, it, it this, this sort of asynchronous kind of like uh, as I've heard it described uh, collaboration. It it has good good aspects and bad aspects, but it does make it more viral. And there's been a few other choices they've made, for example, around plugins being really easy to install that also have made it more viral. Hmm. Um, so that so that getting back to my question, yeah, what's making AI? Or so yeah, getting back to that, I I, I feel that um, so chat interfaces and Slack have have be, certainly become a trend, and that's really interesting. Um, and again, the timing is right again, even though it's not a new idea. None of these ideas are are new. Often, I do think there's been a lot of focused advances in machine intelligence. I think as a whole, there's a sort of echo chamber, certainly in Silicon Valley and probably the tech world as a whole, around ideas like like AI is now a thing and machines are massively smarter. But of course, things that work for chatbots and things that are working for uh, you know, other kinds of AI problems aren't always the same thing. And Slack is, most pieces of Slack don't involve AI at all. AI at all. But I, I, I think there are, uh, there's just so much more interest and there's a certain focused progress on certain problems. Yeah, Microsoft just had so their build. Around um, their build conference. I don't know if you watched some of that, but right. they've uh, they announced. It seemed like they were pushing really heavily into, um, you know, chat bots and bot programming Absolutely. in general. Yeah. No, and I I I uh, I, I advise a, a couple startups, and, and and I see a lot of interest in this space currently. Like people are really interested in in chat based interfaces, and I think Siri and Google now show that there's a lot of interest in that from the big companies. And now Amazon has even a whole, whole uh, platform for their Echo. Um, where, where developers can plug in components and Viv, the startup I've been at most recently, also is interested in that ecosystem. Basically, how do you integrate services in a way to have a more coherent experience? Because right now, um, I think another uh, another trend is that around apps on your phone, is, is we all have so many apps, that the experience is really fragmented. I don't know about you guys, but I have like 250 apps or something on my phone. Right. And so you end up saying, well, there needs to be a a better interface and conversation and chat is one possible way that you might interact with a lot of services at once. Sure, and that that's where uh, some products like like Alexa and um, and Viv are are, th- are thinking as well. It's, it's kind of funny that it is sort of uh, and especially with with your um, background with the command line and the thing you wrote. I mean, it's it's funny that like you know in the in the beginning it was command line. And then mm-hmm. GUI interfaces came in, and it was like, okay, well, that's clearly the easier, more obvious way to interact with something. Right. And now we're, we're talking about going back to command line, basically, even if it's spoken. It's like right, uh, absolutely. I, I think also people um, have become more sophisticated as users, so I think that might be another factor around uh, some of the trends now. Where if you go way back to uh, to the '60s, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like Doug Engelbart's Mother of All Demos, where he demoed <laughs> a lot of the aspects of the internet. In the very very early days, before the you know the internet was just coming into being, huh. and one of his uh, ideas when some of these early early you know tech pioneers was that you should optimize for long term efficiency when you use a computer, not the short term. So, GUIs were a good example in his mind of short-term. optimizing for short term because mm-hmm. you're finding out the features that are really easy to find just kind of pointing and clicking and looking, but longer term like Unix gurus and people who have used right. the command line have always been, well, no, 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 you should invest the time up front and become more efficient. 
And so that was why a lot of old school programmers always liked the command line and liked more obscure tools because they're like, well, we invested this time and now we're more efficient. I think, though, that younger people now are using new tools and wanting faster, more effective ways to interact with, with technology. And they're, they're implicitly absorbing you know, less obvious, more obscure ways to interact with software. And, uh, and that makes it more efficient once you, you pick up those things. Um, hmm. So I, I, I think chatbots are an example where you might... Um, I have a feeling that a lot of these things are not going to be around pure natural language. They're going to be more around commands because you want the sh fast, efficient way to do certain things effectively. Um, yeah, so the tricky part with that is always is always helping the user understand what the universe of commands are. Um, because once once they have to memorize a bunch of commands or or know that it it increase it makes the kind of ability to interact uh, go way down. S Siri, for instance, when I use Siri, like I mean, it just seems like a good percentage of the time when I try to use Siri, it doesn't get what I'm trying to to ask, and it takes me in some different direction to the point where I don't really use it that much. The Amazon Echo, on the other hand, I guess maybe has a, a more limited set of mm -hmm. commands. It doesn't it doesn't set expectations that it can respond to anything you ask, and um, I don't know. It feels a little bit less frustrating. It almost always gets what I'm what I'm asking. Um, yeah, I, com I completely yeah. agree. I I think uh, the big challenge with an open ended product like Google searches the same way. Right, long ago, people were like, "You just just the idea of having a product with nothing but a search bar, and you can type anything into it." it was very mystifying, right? Because like, what do you put in there? Do people type questions? Do they type? And we all learned that you should use keywords, and now we all don't think about that anymore. Right. But it was a learning process and then sort of a negotiation with what is what is this product and what will it do for me? And I don't think we figured that out when it comes to natural language interaction, like like talking and conversational. People use the, the phrase conversational AI now. I don't think we know. We see movies like her, which lead you to think that you should be able to say anything. And right. that's probably not the way we'll use intelligent software in the future is not treating them like humans, just like search, you know, we developed a, a specific things we ask Google and specific things we know better than to ask Google because we know it won't work. And uh, we don't think about it at this point with Google, but I think we're, we're it's going to take time to figure out what that is for natural language. Yeah, uh, let's let's talk about. Um, I mean, we're kind of changing gears a little bit, but going back sure. to the to the um, to GitHub as a place to store documents and collaborate on documents. Um, so, tell me a little bit about how how that has evolved, because I've always thought GitHub might be an interesting place to put contracts uh, and allow people to kind of branch and and make changes to contracts, make their own version of a contract, and so you could see the the, the idea of being able to trace a contract back to its original source uh, is kind of interesting because lawyers. We, we kind of work with contracts all the time. A lot of times you don't really know what the origin of the thing you're working with is um, or why what, some of the language that we keep in our contracts is there because of some, you know, bit of case law or something that caused someone to add a provision to a contract. And there's always – sometimes there's a bit of fear about removing things from contracts with because right. you don't understand the history of why it was added. Um, it seems like something like GitHub where you could trace a document back to who made the change and why would be really interesting. Yeah, absolutely, and I and I think there's kind of a an analogy here often in 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 software develop I mean in the development of, of different tech products where very technical people often are the first to explore an idea and then they encounter it early and then people outside of programmers and geeks kind of realize oh this is a you know this is really an idea that's relevant to law or to other other domains and I think uh, the fundamental problem that GitHub is addressing is management of versioning of 
content or code or all sort of you know information. And that turns out to have been just an incredibly complex problem that people have been struggling with since the start of computers because we're constantly manipulating all these bits and they're changing over time and they break all the time and we're wanting to know why things have changed. And there's been a long series of software to, to deal with that problem of managing that change. And I think interestingly it's only now at the point where millions of people can do it fairly effectively if they're technical. We've developed the product to that point and that is GitHub where which there's um, 13 million developers now on GitHub, which is something kind of impressive to me uh, that there's that many highly technical people managing software on this single platform and working with each other and collaborating around software. But um, those are very technical for the most part programmers still. But their GitHub itself is offering a way to manage revisions of code in a a fairly complex and sophisticated way and it turns out you need that sort of complexity because anytime someone is thinking of changing a piece of code they have to think about it, they have to try it, they have to get feedback, they have to get buy-in from people who are uh, you know might might uh, have authority over making the changes so I might have a great idea of how to make Linux better uh, but unless I can convince certain key Linux committers that this is needed in the Linux kernel right. I, my opinion is certainly welcome, but it's not going to have an impact until I can show that the changes I'm suggesting to the Linux kernel are worthwhile, which is a, a really powerful idea. So I, that you have openness to contribution like that, but then control over the changes. And I think that's something that is a complex problem, and it's just getting to the point where it's being well solved for software. And uh, But it applies to a lot of domains. Getting back, Mike, to your question about legal docs, it's the same problem in legal docs, right? You're I'm sure you're copying contracts all over the place from other sources, making a tweak, fixing a little issue, and thinking about all that those revisions is a uh, is a complicated problem. And GitHub almost is at the point where it helps with that. There's some challenges, but it almost is there. Um, yeah. What so are the I mean, what are the downsides to using it for documents? I mean, I've, I've played around. I've I've done um, a bit of code work on GitHub, but I've right. never used it for like a legal document or or for just plain you know, Word documents or written documents. You can't it's, upload a Word document because it shows up right. as like a binary. Um, yeah. so, so it has to all be, I guess, text-based, text-specific, right? Or, or is it... Yeah. So what, I, what I've what i focused on and like uh, and a few other folks who have done this is you compromise and basically you just use text documents on GitHub and so you're treating the text almost like code so people can contribute line by line. GitHub has a few features that at least make it easy to look at the text document and have a little bit of nice formatting. It's not a full-featured document processing system. Like you, you're not going to have all the features of Word, um, so you have to compromise on that. That's why I mean, it's like almost there. But if you just have a five-page text document, or a twenty-page legal doc, or whatever it might be, do you just put it in as text, or or in in uh, in in the in the current way of doing things? I think Markdown is the best mm -hmm. format. So you, it's basically structured text with bullets and links and things like that. Um, so it. It works pretty well. It's not perfect. But you have this amazing benefit, which is that anyone can then access it, suggest improvements, copy it. All the benefits you have with code apply to that text document. And so that's what happened with uh, the couple guides that, that I've helped write and, uh, and I've seen a lot of other folks work with as well. Yeah, my theory on this is that um, in the future, I think the most 
commonly, I mean, maybe this is a ways off, but I mean, I think the most commonly used legal documents are going to be legal documents that have basically crowdsourced at some level, um, you know, community input to them so that they're widely accepted and, and like the series seed documents are a great example. I mean, they're very, very highly, have, are very, very commonly used. And I think the reason why is because they they subject themselves to the input from the crowd. Absolutely. And, and I think there's some really interesting analogies because if you think about with software, because if you think about software, for going back years, a lot of databases and operating systems were all closed source. And over a period of recent decades, we've realized that there's some benefits to making software open source. And the reason is that when things are so complex, you need the input and the experiences and the testing and the suggestions from as many people as possible right. to improve the quality. And the same is true with legal documents, right? There's decades of experience that probably go into some contracts and the way that they're structured and because they have how they interact with so many technicalities. Right. And so the way you get high quality with complex documents or software is you get more eyeballs and more engagement and more testing of it. And so the only way you get quality is by actually giving it away right. and getting people to contribute. And I, I think that's true for content too. We haven't seen it yet, but it's uh, if you think even about not like a lot of books could benefit from people's improvements and suggestions. But currently we wait for the author to come out with a second edition which is kind of the paper, the print media version of that. Whereas if you can publish something in a, a software style way like this, like a, whether it's legal docs or whether it's other content, you're having a sort of continuous improvement model. Right. You know, there's, another, there's another aspect to legal documents being collaborated on that, that doesn't really exist with, with software. And um, it's, it's sort of this concept that you could have a document like Series, series C document um, where there's been input from all types of folks and all sides and everyone kind of comes to an agreement that this represents sort of a reasonable middle ground for an agreement and it streamlines the the ability to kind of come to come to uh, an agreed upon uh, deal right. because because you can say you know neither party is serving up their own document they're all both pointing to something saying this is what the community feels is reasonable for this type of a deal and here are some minor changes that we want to make to it um, there's this document in the advertising industry. It's the, um, I don't know, they call it like the IAB form, which is, I think it's Internet Advertising Board or Internet Advertising Bureau or something like that. It, it's a, it's a, um, like a industry group of advertising right. people. And it, and it was basically, it's made up of folks who sell advertising and folks who buy advertising and they got together and they agreed on, on a form for buying advertising. And it's, right. it's just a standard set of terms. They use it for selling everything from like million dollar internet banner ads uh, buys to buying like a, you know, a, a picture on a bus stop. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's just what they use. And then whenever somebody wants to buy advertising, they just say it's, you know, they, they sign a purchase order and they say, this is, this is governed by the IAB terms and everybody just signs it and, and you don't and have to save so, oh, much save so much time. It's so much time. I mean, there's no back and forth. And so you're doing, you know, what, what could be a million dollar, uh, transaction on you know a one-page purchase order referencing those terms because everybody g you know got together and agreed that this is basically a reasonable place to come out. Um, and right, that's, right. It's the only it's the only you know besides maybe the Series Seed stuff. It's like the only industry that I know that has done that. M maybe real estate because we kind of do all of our our house purchasing on the standard like um, MLS forms that they've created that we've all established are reasonable enough, but. 
yeah, there needs to be like some more, more industries need to adopt that. It would, it would, um, it would be so much more cost effective than having to negotiate, particularly like SaaS contracts. I do, I do a ton of uh, work with companies helping them negotiate um, SaaS agreements with their customers, and right. you know they all have a different form. In, in my case, they they usually work off something similar if they're if they're clients of mine. But um, you know, everybody has their own idea about where things need to end up, and we have to negotiate each one individually, and it costs costs money every single time. Well, I, I, I go back again to this software analogy, which is this was the case with things like databases back in the day. Different companies would try to each build their own database, and it would have been in their interest to actually pool their resources and build a really better database and make revenue off of other models. But then that's what's happened with most databases now are open source uh, uh, that are, you know, in a lot of industries. I mean, obviously, there's, there's some that are Oracle is still fully closed source, but, but certain key pieces of software that took all that effort to develop were just better off once someone put in that up for effort up front. And I think the same thing could be true for legal docs is you just need some motivated player to put in that effort up front right. and the good faith to show the benefits and then people jump in. And I think that that same model actually applied to the, the equity compensation guide that you know Joe, you and I did was you put in a little bit of effort up front and you summarize a lot of information. I've seen the same thing happen now when I advise startups or I talk to friends who are thinking about uh, an equity compensation question. I'm like, well, this has been looked at by a lot of people right. and agree it's roughly reasonable. So you don't have to take my word for it. Just look at this doc that we've come up with that a lot of people have vetted. And that gives them some basis for like getting a sense of what's the sort of standard wisdom around something like that, which is the shared knowledge. Right. Yeah, it's nice to be able to point someone, particularly in the contract space, to say, "Take a look. This is the contract we want to use, or this document we want to use, and don't take my word for it. It's you know, go look at the website. It's it's uh, it's a lot of people have gotten behind this document, and it's coming from a fair, reasonable place. Um, right. Yeah, it and gives putting it on GitHub like gives you that neutral territory mm-hmm. where you're like you're saying we're all looking on it when it's, it's neutral territory, as opposed to sending someone a doc from your own law firm or from right. your own. Where it's got your own letterhead on it, and you're like, "No, trust me, this is this is really good." You just have to. You're just requiring that person to go through a lot more mental effort to vet that they trust what you're giving them. Right. Is GitHub the right place for that sort of thing, or is it just kind of where things end up because it it has the infrastructure? Like, do, I guess the question is, if you were talking about building things like, like the the open source or the uh, the command line guide that you helped create, and uh, and things like legal documents or or equity comp guides. Is GitHub the right place for it, or, or are we just kind of settling for GitHub because it, it has the tools we need? Um, I think it's a little of both. I don't think it's the right place long term unless GitHub has a f- much broader vision. Their, there. yeah. their, their revenue model is around selling you know, uh, on-premises and cloud-based source control to enterprises. And fundamentally, companies do orient around their revenue source. And so I don't know that GitHub will look at it as that as a it's not a something they're prioritizing goal, right because that may not be their their revenue model but um, but I think it is a really interesting playground and indication of the future of where things can go um, so I and then one other thing that's really powerful right now with github is that there is this network of developers so just like medium has a has taken over blogging in a lot of ways for a lot of bloggers by providing a network of, of readers and writers within a single platform. I think GitHub has done that for this very techie audience. And so you have sort of a built-in community and 
audience and uh, even a certain amount of virality within the system itself. So that's a lot of where the command line and the equity comp guide got a lot of their popularity was through the network of GitHub itself. What would a perfect situ- what would a perfect solution look like? Like, what is GitHub missing? Would would um would it be better if it if it could handle Word documents and Excel spreadsheets or things like that? Or or is it um like is it, is it missing those features or is are those things just distractions? I think there are a lot of things it is missing. Whether it's supporting Word documents, I would probably say no. But maybe not. That's yeah. that's uh, I think often what happens is when you really rework a product everything gets reworked from the ground up sometimes. So like uh, if you think about, I, I think uh, there's probably a path to some product like that, but what it looks like, it's hard to say. Uh, just like if you're trying to predict, uh, you know, reworking blogging would be a little hard to predict. What is the features of Medium that really make it better than a lot of other blogging platforms? But, it, you know, it, it's added certain features and made certain frictions much better for the, uh, remove them for the user. Mm. And overall people just, connect and engage and have a little more virality with the experience. And so I think there is that opportunity around documents for sure. So looking back on like, like, like the, your, your career thus far, like if you were to give your younger self some advice, what would it be? Uh, yeah. So like, I mean, as, as someone who's just been in startups for a while, I've, I've every now, every couple of years and as I, I think about what I want to work on next and, and you know I've definitely maybe have done a little of that more recently but I do have a lot of thoughts about when, when you're getting into startups especially if it's your first startup or second startup and you haven't had much experience joining a startup uh, obviously founding a startup is another experience entirely uh, but you know related but um, but if I assume some of your listeners may be thinking of joining a startup you when you are it's very hard to know what you're signing yourself up for and what are the ways to um, to, to think through how to evaluate that opportunity and if it makes sense for you and and so on. So I, I do have some thoughts, I guess, on thinking about evaluating startup opportunities. And uh, so that that's one one category. Um, I probably have some other more other pieces of advice as well, but I'll, I'll maybe I'll talk about the, the startup advice is um, I, I think I, I imagine the number of your listeners are um, are very technical. And so you're you're often at least I was this way when I was younger was uh, I was very excited by working on a hard and interesting technical problems, and so I was biased towards startups that are working on hard and interesting technical problems. And I think that that's a good thing, but there's sort of a, a f- sort of phases of understanding of startups I think you go through, and um, one is that you first get excited by the technology if you're a techie, or maybe you get excited by the product, and then you realize that that what your that product or that technology isn't going to really matter unless you're working on it with the best team, right? And so you then begin to realize that team is trumps the technology or the product in some ways. And then you realize that actually often uh, sort of a, ne- a next layer of understanding is that you, you could be working with the best team, but unless there's like a good product market fit and a business model that's going to make sense, it doesn't matter how good a team you're working with and how good the product and exci- exciting the product is because you don't have a clear business model that will sustain the company. So you realize, well, that trumps team in some ways. You have to, you, and then the next layer I kind of came to after you know, seeing a little more uh, years in startups was, well, that doesn't really matter either because you often don't have that business model perfectly lined up. And if you look at successful companies, they iterate on their revenue model and their business model and their product features a lot. So then you begin to realize, 
actually what matters is your ability to iterate on these product features. And so I actually think that that becomes even more critical to look at when you're looking at a startup. If you just look at the team and you say, well, like, yeah, this is a cool problem, but is this team really good? And then you're like, well, this cool team is really good, but are they going to be able to iterate on these ideas fast? And so in some ways, it almost all boils down to the psychology and team dynamics of how people work together. So it's all psychology. And basically, that, so I guess that's, that's the word of wisdom I have, is, is that when you, when you unwind it and you begin to look at how startups play out, you realize how much is psychology, of, especially in the early days. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that, Mike? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll, you know, the, the projects that I've always worked on, I've been, I don't know if you'd call it fortunate or unfortunate, but the startups and the, and the entrepreneurial things that I've worked on have always been one-man show. I, you know, okay. I, I work on a product, I build the product, I bring in people that I need to help as I go. And, and, it, and so the psychology and the team dynamic has never, I've never had to kind of deal with that. Um, and that, that may be a yeah. good thing, but, um, yeah, I could see why anytime you're mixing more than one person together on a project, you know, just how that interaction works is going to be like a huge, huge deal. That's one of the reasons why I've always shied away from, from working with other people is that, <laughs> you know, you got to worry about, well, you know, what happens if the other guy's not working as hard as you, or what if, you know, what if he wants to do something or she wants to do something different? And then there's a disagreement. And now you've both invested time and money in something that, you know, you're not going to abandon. But you, I mean, it just seems like having that kind of consensus that seems like every time you add another, another co-founder, you, you create another right. layer of stuff that's keeping you from building because you're worried, yeah. working on, you know, inner, inner company dynamics. But the thing is, I guess, you know, a lot, a lot of problems can't be solved by one guy. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's you can't you don't always have the luxury of having the the opportunity that you're going after be something that one person can build. In fact, most most things worth doing probably can't be done by one person. So, right. Uh, well, small. And, I know. think almost everything worthwhile can be done by one person or a small team, at least to get it off the ground. Right. It's just a matter of finding that right person and the right team and the right idea and aligning them. Um, but yeah, I I would even argue though that it sounds like you've been very successful in a lot of your uh, one person efforts. I would say probably a lot of that is a result of your, the way you approached the problem and iterated and shipped and pushed yourself. And so that's a very psychological, you know, that, that probably is why you were able to do that as opposed to So how do you evaluate? Else. So let me just ask you this. Say you're thinking about joining a team and how do you evaluate whether that team is going to be able to like iterate quickly like, or not iterate quickly? Like how do you, how do you make a judgment about that? Um, all these things are hard. I think actually even just thinking about it matters a lot because I actually, I myself didn't value that, think about that very explicitly. And even just thinking about it, you can look at examples, right? You can look at when you're joining a company, how fast do they iterate and work on closing you as a candidate and getting you into the pipeline. If they're the sort of team that's like kind of not clear about whether they want to hire you, they're like, oh, come back later, not sure, or they take a lot of time to make decisions or they seem to not be thoughtful about how they're making those decisions. That's that's just a very narrow example, but you're part of the you're you're part of their interest, you're right? You're part of the iteration. You're and you're part of the iteration of that and they, team. And they can't they can't even hire you. They can't iterate enough to hire you. Right. So <laughs> so little things are examples like that. I, I actually uh, they're not perfect and you should right. ask around and try to get opinions from others on those same topics, but right. um, but you can often see little examples of that sort of thing. And little things early on, if you're joining early, I mean, certainly I've had more experience early. If you're joining early in the startup, little things have a way of being very big by the time the company grows up, um, good and bad, like it, or, you know, they, they, they amplify in surprising ways. 
So you were you were like employee number two at a company that went to two hundred employees. So you saw some of this magnification effect. Yeah, absolutely. All the way through. And I think things that you struggle with early on, it's best if you know if you are in an early startup to try to deal with those things early. So if you have uh, maybe you iterate really well on some technical problems, but you're not you know in solving problems, but maybe. Uh, you have trouble scaling up more people to work on the system, or maybe uh, you have the culture just isn't that fun, so your people are not having as you know working as hard and having as good a time. Those are things you can notice, and you just I think they're not none of these things are critical flaws. They're just about being mindful and realizing them, and then working to address them. So just like you iterate on a piece of code to make remove the bugs, you iterate on your culture and your team and your dynamics of how you work together when you're a, a multi-person team and you figure out things that are not working and you thoughtfully try to figure out how to correct them. Um, I think another example of a challenge sometimes is startups will go have a blame culture. They'll be like, so this thing is wrong and it's this person's fault. That's actually just an inherent cultural problem in a company and you can work to fix that and try to find ways that when things go wrong, you collectively adjust and make corrections. If you're using GitHub, you can you can attribute blame specifically to who you. Are. <laughs> yeah, in, in, there is this Git blame command, which is actually a very great tool in some ways. Uh, it, I don't know if it has the best name, but it, it it's a it's a it's a great tool to like help understand why why things got to a broken state. Yeah, in <laughs> Xcode, in Xcode, they have a um, a view called blame blame view. Where it's just like, I guess it just shows you who Each made what line, changes. Every line of code, who caused that last change, and then you're like, you know who to point your finger at. So that's the joke. Um, but in a way, weird way, I think it's almost one of these Zen things, which is if you make completely make it completely transparent who's done everything, right? But you also don't have a blame culture of like yep. mm-hmm. pointing people in like a negative way, and you're always constructive. Then you want that transparency. You really do want to know who made that change that broke everything, and you want everyone to know that. But then you're not taking it out on them in a personal way. Yeah. So I think it's sense. it's having complete transparency, but complete openness to working in you know, a positive way, right. at, and not scapegoating people. And that's a hard. It's almost a paradox to try to do both, but it, you can. Um, but I, I think they work together. Great. Well, thanks, Josh. This has been really great. Is there any place where people can go and find out what you're working on, or if they want to follow you on Twitter, or what's, what's uh, your information? Yeah, I guess uh, since we've been talking about GitHub, go ahead and follow me on GitHub. Uh, GitHub is my user ID is J Levy, J L E V Y. Uh, I think there's a link there to my Twitter as well, um, and uh, that's I, I'm very interested in hearing from anyone who's interested in the space of collaboration, engineers. I, I always enjoy connecting with people, and if any of these ideas are interesting, people shouldn't hesitate to. To shoot me their ideas or yeah, and thoughts if you, on this space. If you uh, if you just Google you know open guide to equity compensation, you'll find that piece. And right. Art yeah. of the, I'm sure if you Google art of the command line, you'll yep. find that piece too. And you and you can contribute to please both, yeah. both pieces. Please, and, and I, I I I have to say I, I should also add that working with Joe on this open guide to equity compensation was has been like a really really fun project, and it's it's, it's how we got to know each other. Uh, better and it, it's been it's been just a delight and uh, I'd love to see more folks look at that and use that in helpful ways as they're evaluating startup offers and and thinking about about the, uh, this really complicated messy problems and having sort of a neutral guide seemed like a really useful thing so it's been a, right. I, I love all the the things Joe's put into this guide and uh, I'd love to see it keep living and have people contribute and give questions and so on. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. And I think um, on the equity comp piece, I think that's that's one of those areas where um, sometimes I think I, I think that's, that's one of those areas where there's I think there's a lot of transparency problems because yeah, the people sure. it's a complex area. It's hard to understand. It's hard to talk about. And then there's there's a there's there's just a, in a, somehow there's a I think there's a it's just trouble talking transparently about what these documents actually say, what they mean, what they portend. And, and and but I think that's changing with the way you know, you know, with the way communications are evolving. People are getting better at understanding these documents, sharing information about what other companies are doing. Right. So I think that's going to be a long-term good thing for for basically workers. Yeah, I think it's good. I, and interestingly, I think it's really good for the companies as well. I think there's a certain opaque nature of some of these discussions when you're getting stock options and the company's like this is a great deal we're giving you this or that and you're like I have no idea if this is good or not and you might think that that's good for the company because they have so much more information than you do but I don't think it actually is often good for companies for everyone collectively long term not to be making the best informed decisions because those tend to hurt the company long term as well if they're not making good offers or not making uh, you know dealing in a sort of above board way, which most companies do, but some don't. Right. And and having it be open is good for the companies as well. It's not just an employee versus employer kind of thing. It's just adding knowledge to the system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, super fun. Thanks for being on the show, Josh. No, thank you guys. This is, this is a lot of fun and uh, I hope to keep keep connecting uh, on GitHub or whatever platform, or Slack or whatever platform we find in the future. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be fun. Great. Well, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week.